Hi everyone, Aaron Noonan here again. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Alan Grice was in really good form in part one of our chat. In part two, he carries on the form. Some of the topics we'll cover, NASCAR racing. Keenly interested in asking him about his time racing at the Calder Park Thunderdome and at Charlotte in the United States. We talk about his couple of runs in the Le Mans 24 hour, his time in politics, which he lasted nearly a decade, which the man, or anyone who lasted nearly a decade in politics, deserves a medal. Uh, His time in V8 Ute Racing, or V8 Brute Racing as it was known then. He also handles the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer Questions, those questions that our listeners have sent in over previous weeks, and he also deals with the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Here we go, time to buckle up. Let's get ready to start part two of Alan Grice on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. We talked about um, 86, Grice. I wanted to, to talk to about Les Small because you two made yeah. a great combo for many years, particularly the Roadways yeah. era, but before that he was with the Craven Mile team as well. Where did you yeah. two first come across one another? I guess you became yeah, – you were like-minded and, and that's how you got together and spent so many years working together. Yep, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Um, well, he worked for Gown Heindor. I, I, I reckon I met him through Gown Heindor. Because uh, Norm Gown and Bruce Hindor ran a speed shop, and they ran Brock for a while in a Gown Hindor car. That's right. Yep. And Les worked for them, and I'm sure that's where I met him. That's where we met each other. And I was sort of trying to bust out of my straps, but I knew I, knew I needed a uh, uh, a mechanic engineer. Chris has just walked in. That sounds about right, doesn't it? Les met Les Small through Gown Hindor. Yeah, she agrees. It's good. And being, I, it's, it's good being interview when your wife can help validate stories, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, that's. And then, as you say, like-minded, we got on very well. We're a good, good mates. Not to not to say we didn't have a blue from time to time, but uh, we were good mates. Some of the best combinations have blues because I guess they can be open and honest with each other and then get exactly. on with it afterwards and exactly move on like nothing really happened. Um, he, he was with you with a, a fair bit of that NASCAR stuff that went on and, and you, you yeah. did the racing in America but also in Australia as well. How did yes. that whole NASCAR connection for you start? Was that you identifying it as, I should get a, among this, this looks like a bit of fun? Is it Bob Jane saying, hey, Gricey, you're my guy, come and let's go to America? How did that all, yeah. all come to be? Yeah, uh, John Shepard built the first eight, five or eight cars or 12, I don't know. Uh, but he built them as sh- rolling chassis and the, and the teams got them at a reasonable price. Um, and to it was an advertising thing to, to advertise Calder in this new type of racing that um, he got Shepard to put build two complete cars and... Uh, to, get, to, to take them to the World 600 at Charlotte. And uh, he asked me and uh, Graham Crosby, uh, and, uh, you know, we'll take you and your wife and you'll be over there for fortnight. So we went to a Buddy Baker school, actually, because you couldn't go straight into, into the, into the uh, World 600 without a, a NASCAR licence. 
So we had to go to the Buddy Baker School um, and get endorsed by Buddy Baker <coughs> to even be able to practice it for the World 600. And um, I qualified uh, with Foster's backing, and I, I qualified for the race, and unfortunately, Cross didn't. And it sort of broke his heart. He, he, um, I don't think he drove after that, but uh, there it was. Very different style of racing, mate. How, how did you adapt to it? Were you intimidated by it? What did you think about it? Because it was a whole new world that we were, oh, Australia yeah. Racing was getting into. We just didn't have a track like that and style of cars like that. No, it was it was uh, it was quite extraordinary that the the speed with which you could turn into a corner. You know, you've got a a, mo- a motor racing, uh, a road racing head on, and you've got the head control, the eyes control the information to the head, and then the head in- controls the information to your right foot, and you this turn one or turn three are coming up when you've got to turn into the, you've got to be so fast and turn into the corner and you you can't keep your bloody foot on the throttle. Your throttle looks up to your forehead and says, get back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going in there flat. <laughs> you are, yeah, the brain saying to the foot, you, you what? You, you're going to do what? <laughs> so you've got to, uh, you've got to do enough laps to get, I have to teach your brain that you can, you'll still be alive in another second, two seconds time. <laughs> was it a realistic? Um, I mean, you did. I mean, you uh, you qualified for the World Six Hundred, which these days it's I think it's called the Coke Six Hundred from memory. It's the yeah. it's the Memorial Day NASCAR race that's held the, yeah. the night that the Indy Five Hundred's on. So it's a really big deal, and you were the first Australian. Probably the first non-American to, to, to turn up for. No, there probably, was a Canadian bloke. Oh, he's close enough. He's 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 yeah. North American, you know. Don't, yeah, ruin, don't yeah. ruin my story, Grice. Jeez, um, <laughs> but you know, like it was one of those scenarios where no one outside the Daytona Five Hundred at the time it was probably the biggest NASCAR race uh, on the calendar. So I mean, you're not. Well, just, the thing that you never hear about or you never read about is that the the teams. There are so many teams in. in United States, and there are teams that run professional NASCAR all year. There are other teams that uh, try to qualify for one, two, three, or four of their local races a year, and they're still full professional semi-trailer teams. So on about the Tuesday before uh, the World 600, they, they start, I think, let's say they start 40. There might be 100 Semi trailers, trucks, and transporters, and truckloads of spares, and truckloads of spare chassis and spare engines from these professional teams from all over America arrive. And at the end of Tuesday, the slowest 20 go home. At the end of Wednesday, the slowest 10 go home. At the end of Thursday, the slowest 10 go, go home. And that leaves your field to then get into qualifying. I mean, and these are the, the trucks that go out the gate. They're the most immaculate things you've ever seen in your life, better than anything any, anything we've got in Australia. And they're told to go home on Tuesday or Wednesday. Mm. So how, how hard is it to get in the, in the race? Uh, hand on heart, did you think you were honestly going to qualify when you turned up there for the first time? Oh, uh, I... <laughs> 
the thing was we went to this Buddy Baker driving school and Crosby was uh, one or two tenths quicker than me there with no pressure on. But once we got to this uh, to this uh, day-by-day trying to stay in the top 20 or whatever, he got more and more pressure and more and more pressure and he, he started to go worse and worse. And I finished up being a second a lap quicker than him, whereas he was a couple of tenths quicker than me when there was no pressure on. You know, there's all that sort of thing comes into it. Um, I was I did I think I'd qualify? Yeah, I always thought I'd qualify. But I didn't know how in the name of Christ I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. I think it was the zero three Foster's Oldsmobile. Uh, yeah, it could, couldn't have got yep. more quintessential NASCAR American than a, a name and a sponsor. Carl, of course, Foster's. <laughs> you know, it was the eighties. I mean, it was. Crocodile Dundee mm. and Hogues and Fosters yeah. and the America's Cup win and uh, yep. you know you yep. were racing uh, world touring cars, European stuff. Uh, there was that real world um, stuff going on, and <laughs> so much. Yeah, and uh, it was great. The typical, typical to cause the um, some American motor racing journalist dredged up the fact that I was the quickest rookie qualifier ever. That was the only one. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're the only one. You are the one. You hold the record. That's a record. That's a record. Uh, tell me, too, remember that the very first NASCAR race at Calder, early 88, yeah. was a big deal. They brought out some big-name drivers. Yeah. Neil Bonnet, um, a, yeah. a very young Michael Waltrip was in the field who won yeah. the Daytona 500 a couple of times many years later. Um, I think Johnny Rutherford might have been in the field. There were some, some big names. Bob there Jane were. spent a lot of money on that one, but... You ended yeah. up in hospital. Tell me about that big wreck that you had with a bunch of cars. You'd been motoring along pretty well and then no brakes and a crash and you were suddenly banged up pretty well. Yeah, no brakes. And I got on the phone and said, uh, I've got to come in. I've got no, I've, I've, now, I've got little brake and now I've got no brake. And uh, Les said, uh, well, yeah, okay, we'll just roll it around uh, until, there's a, until there's a yellow and at least that won't put us out of the race. Because you, you're out of on a track like Calder, if you come in on, on, under uh, under go conditions, you're pretty much out of it for the rest of the day. So I was rolling around waiting for the yellow, and when <laughs> when the yellow came out, I was in it. Mm. <laughs> it was a big and shunt. I, uh, big shunt. It was a big shunt, and I thought I'd broken something in the in my chest. Uh, because for about three days, I couldn't keep anything down. But I'd had I'd broken nothing. It was just that the the force of gravity throwing my chest against the eight, eight point belts, six point belts probably. <laughs> um, it, it just shocked my, a hole in my stomach and my body. It, I stopped so fast I couldn't hold anything down. And I'm not a I'm not a I'm not prone to throwing up. You know that's not my nature, not my my metabolism. But I thought I must have broken something, but I didn't. It was just to show the force of the deceleration. Was that the biggest crash of your career? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest hit. And I broke nothing. And it, did, uh, it, did it put you off the NASCAR thing or you just went, no, 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 it's just no. a thing, I'll keep going? Yeah, if you play football, you break your nose, you know. Yeah, yeah. Was there ever an ambition? I know you did Charlotte a couple of times and backwards and forwards, but – was there ever a plan? Was there ever, you know, there might be something to reveal here to our listeners. Was there ever a plot or a plan to, to get a full-time NASCAR team or to maybe even 
take one of those Commodore NASCARs because remember that they they livery or they panelled a NASCAR as a, a Commodore, and I think they did a, some Falcons as well. But to take one of them to America, was there bigger and better plans in place to to do it full time or on a on a bigger scale? Yes, but not not that way, not the way you've suggested. Um, we fa- I don't know how we fell upon um, Raymoc R A H M O C Engineering, which was a, a, a NASCAR team, and they were made up of two. That Ray was. Um, Oh, Butch, what were their names? Butch Mock, Bush, uh, Ray Mock anyway, two, two different blokes. was half their name each. And they were hired uh, to be a, a, a consultants to us alongside their own cars. And I think that's Neil Bonnet, I think, was running one of their cars. I think he won that, that inaugural race in, in 88 at Calder in one of their cars, yeah. That's correct, yeah. Well, um we were working out of out of their workshop uh, with their preparing the car. Like when the when the cars arrived and came out of the container, this good old guy looked at the cars because they were John Shepherd built cars, and he said, "Boy, they're real, real fine looking cars, but they ain't race cars." <laughs> <laughs> because you know the spring pickup points were wrong, and this was wrong. Anyway. They were hired to make them into race cars, and uh, and they did. And um, and then they asked me to come back after uh, after we'd finished, and I think we broke a diff or something. Mm. I think we had a, a diff yep. problem. Yeah. Um, they contacted me uh, and said would, would they'd like to. They think of entering another car. They had another sponsor by then. And I think part of the deal was they'd uh, they'd run two cars at the World Six Hundred. So they rang and said, you know, you want to come out and drive one of our cars? I said, trust you, I want to come out and drive one of your cars. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so uh, they were going to pay me some money and pay for the airfare and all that sort of stuff. And I think that was from their new, new sponsor, but I didn't ask. And I came out and uh, we went for a private test and uh, running both cars. We had uh, the radio on and uh, I'm going around and I'm sort of trying to keep my nose clean and sneaking at it. And they came on and said, um, oh, great stuff. You've uh, you've just done a XYZ of 41.6 or something like that, which was right on the pace. And I've sort of gone, bloody hell, you're kidding. I'm, I'm still getting my eye in here. I'm not, I haven't really had a crack yet. So I've got, got to move myself forward and back in the seat and, <clears throat> and you know, like, you know, get the, get everything going because I'm going to have a crack now that I've done that time. When I did it easy, I'm going to have a crack now and watch this. And in doing that, wriggling around and moving the harness and everything, I pulled the step, pulled back on the steering wheel and it came straight off. That's when I had a shunt. That'll do and that it. was the end. Of, that was the end of my NASCAR career because <laughs> I wrote the car off, and it's very unusual to do that. Where it, where it, um, when I had the steering wheel in my hand, the car's only going to go one way because they're set up with positive car, a positive camber, and negative caster on the front left, and negative camber and positive caster on the front right. So as soon as you take your hands off the steering wheel, it's going to turn left, mm. right? That's what it did. And it just happened to turn left 
where they had um, a gate that used to slide open to let service vehicles across the track. So there was the whole of, of all the, of the whole inner inner wall. This was the only place where there was a protruding, protruding post, and that's where I went in. Of all the places, that'd be right. Of all, yeah, that's where I went in. So uh, that, it was a good one. I couldn't I couldn't hold anything down, as I said, for two or three days. Yeah, that one, uh, but didn't break anything. But again, and, another big shunt in an ass car, and you got away with it. Yeah. Well, lucky, yeah. lucky. But uh, I was absolutely convinced then and today that after the lap that I did, I was so in control of that lap, still taking everything in, still having peripheral senses and vision, that I would, I reckon I could have gone another oh, half to three quarters of a second quicker, which is a fair bit around a NASCAR track, which would have put me right there. Mm. But it would have, could have, didn't. Yeah. <laughs> The Shannon Speed Series is back for 2024 and next stop is Simmons Plains for AWC Race Tasmania on March 15 to 17. Peugeot Points leader Ben Bargwana leads the way into round two of the Super Cheap Auto TCR Australia Series and there's plenty of V8s to see and hear too. Mighty Moth, Spicy Gricey and the Trico Trans Am Series are in action as well as the ground-shaking Precision National Sports Sedan Series. It's just $55 for a three-day pass. Book now via motorsporttickets.com.au. Was there, a, was there ever a sniff from other teams who said, hey, would, would you ever consider moving to America and following that like Marcus Ambrose did, or did you just do your, your fly-in, fly-out thing and you, you were happy to do that? No, well, there were strings attached to this one. They said, they, you know, they... They said, "How would you, we're going to? We've got another car. Um, would you like to come and drive it? You know, we'll pay you some dollars because we think you can go well, and because you know the track. Because uh, it was Charlotte, and I'm sure there were strings attached to that. If we if we got you know qualified well or gone well or finished well or whatever, I'm sure there was a future there because they, they wouldn't do that for just a one off for nothing. Mm. Yeah, what, they weren't they weren't that cashed up, you know. Yeah, what could have been." What could have been? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, one of the other things that you were you were able to do in your time was a couple of goes at Le Mans, the 24-hour sports car race, once in a Porsche and once in the factory Nissan when you were driving their touring car with, with Wynn Percy. Was that the most uh, imposing? I mean, NASCAR on a big oval when you've never done it, it's pretty imposing. Yeah. But was Le Mans the closest you would have ever been to being scared in a race car because of the, the sheer speeds and the no chicanes in those days? Was that... Eye-opening. What, what did you feel about the the couple of goes you had there? Yeah, well, it, it was you had to comprehend uh, the amount of grip they had with the downforce, and the faster they went with ground effects, the more grip they had. Uh, but I remember after um, after uh, the Nissan that Howard Marsden rang, uh, ran, he uh, it rained, and. Uh, he came after me. We were just sitting around at the, packing up at the end of the day. And he said, uh, Alan, um, how would you regard your drive today compared with what you may have done in the past? And I said, oh, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know, Howard. I had a bit of a crack. And yeah, it was a shame that it stopped. He said, um, 
you don't you probably don't realize but in the wet you are swapping uh, uh, faster slaps with the rain master Hans Stuck. I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it took a fair bit to impress old Howard. He'd been around for a while. I think, Helen, I think this may have been your greatest drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got you got to take uh, credit whenever you get it from anyone. So. <laughs> anyway. But anyway, it's a long way to come from Maitland to to end up at Le Mans. Uh, yeah, tell me about the, you know. I think you drove a Porsche the first time that was a a privateer car that kept popping the wheels off. Uh, and I think oh yeah, you, bloody Charles Ivy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think SAS had got involved to help you out with some sponsorship yep. and to get you into there. And there was a few other Aussies. Perkins was there with Brock and a couple of Alan Jones yep. and Vern Schuppen. So there was a a real yep. Australian again. It was another one of those eighties yep. things where the Aussies were having a crack at the world. Um, yeah, did it did it scare you? Did you did you find it imposing? Did you find it at home? Did you think, wow, I got to find a way to come back and and do this again? Oh, that, what was your thoughts on the Le Mans experience? That that story about uh, uh, the kink because there was no chicane then in those days, and that story about um, uh, going flat through the kink with the, because of the ground effects was something you just couldn't get your mind around, and I th- truly thought that. These bombs that have been coming out to uh, Bathurst, you know, John Fitzpatrick and Derek Bell and and Jonesy and Vern, I reckon they've all got together over a beer and said, let's set fucking Gricey up and tell him that uh, Molson King's flat. <laughs> I honestly thought that they were doing that because they were all being as helpful as possible. You know, they'd see him in the toilet, you see him having a coffee or something. How are you going, Gricey? Can anything we can help you with? Oh, yeah, right up. Uh, and I was having some trouble at it'll come to me but there was I was having a bit of trouble with some one complex and they go how are you going to the kink and I said no no it's uh, I'm it's flat no I'd say yeah that's right I was having trouble with the kink um, how, how do you where where do you break for the kink no it's flat uh, okay and John Fitzpatrick come up. Hey, Gracie, how are you going with, with the track? Oh, um, I'm having trouble at the king. Oh, it's flat. Like, oh, these bastards have got together and they're going to G me up and tell all tell me it's flat and then dismissing it. So I work it up, work myself up, work myself up, work myself up. And the thing was, when you go through flat, you don't lift the nose because you get off the throttle, you lift the nose. It changes the aerodynamics changes the ground effects, and it's a bloody handful through the kink. But if you go flat, the nose stays down, the air, the ground effects do their job, and you could go through there rolling the cigarette flat. <laughs> but you've got to tell your brain that. You know, if, if I'm getting out of the throttle and nearly going off the road, I'm going to die if I go to sit there flat. That's the common sense, isn't it? It's the same uh, foot versus brain argument that you probably had a few years later in the in the NASCAR. It was doing the same thing. Exactly. Oh, the, eye, the eyes exactly are saying right. this is not going to happen. The foot says it has to happen, but the eyes are saying no. Exactly happened. Exactly <laughs> correct. <laughs> I, I loved um, that 80s era. I guess 
when you you always hark back to the period when you were young, and for me, eighties was when I was growing up watching the sport. So I, I love that you and others, but you primarily because you you took on the world, the, the touring car stuff, the NASCAR stuff, Le Mans, Spa, twenty four hour, all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff, which was a, a real. Um, that stuff will never happen again. There'll be no one yeah, who can yeah. do that um, because of the way that motor racing has become. That's just uh, how it's all evolved. Yeah. But um, yeah. uh, I, I really love looking at, at that era. The, the politics for you when you became a, a member of parliament, 92, with um, yeah. uh, you were the, the member for Broadwater in, up there in Queensland. Yeah. And that's kind of, once you did that, the racing, obviously you just didn't have as much time. So racing took a bit of a, a back seat, and I guess it was sure. pretty, pretty hard to do just because you didn't have as much time. Sure, exactly. Yeah, you know, the I often people ask me about that, and there's, there's no job, no doubt that the way that, that that the job of work of a member of parliament is structured. If you want to have a bludge, you're in the perfect job. <laughs> it's just the way it is. But if you want to have a crack. There's a lot of work to be done, a lot of background work to be done, a lot of homework to be done if you want to have a crack because you can't afford to be wrong. Mm, mm. So you've got to triple check everything. Where but did, if you want to have a bludge, no problem. Where did the aspiration to become uh, a Member of Parliament come from? Was it because you'd cut your teeth in motor racing where it's very political? Did you? Was it a case of you wanted to make a difference in the state and in the country? Where did well, the, I've always, where do you look I've at that? Where I've always had an interest. You know, even today uh, and since it first came out, I buy the Australian every day because it's the best broad spectrum news sheet in the, in the country, in my view. <clears throat> so I've always kept up with it, <clears throat> and I still do today. Um, always had an interest. Uh, wasn't I? Only I was never a member of a political party until I started to get interest and realised that I had to be a member of a party to be elected to, to stand. Mm. So I would join the National Party just before they came, became, they combined to the LNP. But I was always right-wing. I thought Attila the Hun was a bit of a pinker. <laughs> <laughs> did, did anyone have to elbow you to do to do this and to... to to run for it, or did you? Yeah, they did. They after I when I was sort of thinking I might have a bit more of a look at this. I I had a couple of friends who were um, who were in the National Party, uh, and uh, I joined through them, and then became more interested through them. Yeah, you were in Parliament for I think about nine years back in the early two three terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, correct. Yep. What was what, what are you most proud of? What, what were the things that you, you were able to make happen or that you pushed for or that you fought for that you, you look back on now and go, yep, I'm glad I did that because that was a, that was a, I was there well, to make a difference and I, and I got some stuff done? Well, they're probably private battles I had because if I thought our policy or our opinion of this new legislation was wrong, I'd stand up and I wouldn't just click my heels because that was a party decision. I'd stand up and say, no, this is all bullshit. I don't think you're right. And they go, what? I said, no, I think you're wrong. But the old policy advisors say this. I said, well, the member for Broadwater doesn't. I think it's bullshit. Hmm. They wouldn't know what to say because they don't. <laughs> not supposed to do that. <laughs> if I want to get a bit of quiet in the room, introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 
I didn't. I didn't tow the party line. I, I mostly did because I mostly genuinely did. You know, it wasn't. I wasn't being obstropolous for the sake of it. But occasionally they'd get something wrong, and I'd, I'd tell them. What's You're not supposed to do that. What's got What's got more politics? Politics or motor racing? Oh, I think motor racing. Yeah. <laughs> underlying, underlying politics. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The two billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or petals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each petal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each petal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over 7 minutes and opened in just over 8 with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. I guess, though, that when that ended, so I think 2001... Is that what meant that you could go do the V8 Ute racing thing because you now had a bit more time and that you still had a, a yearning for doing a bit of racing? Yeah, I think that's fair, fair to say, yeah. It, it, there yep. couldn't have been a better category that fit you and your style. V8 Utes, Gricey, quintessentially Australian. You had a Cobra sponsorship. That all made sense. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a, uh, I did a... An interview on television on one of the general sports shows. I was trying to think who was with, and they said uh, they asked the normal question. You know, how do you find it with the with the uh, light lightweight uh, Ute? You know, with a backsliding around. I said, Oh no, no, no. We've got the dogs to fix that. Fix that. And they said, What do you mean? So I got uh, three blue heelers in the back and. When uh, when I wanted to turn left, I leaned my head over to the left, and they all run over the left hand side of the tray. And when I want to want to brake hard, I put my head back, and they go to the back of the tray to keep the tray down. And they <laughs> they all laugh and say, "Oh yeah, that's funny." I said, "Only one problem." Yeah, what's that? I said, "Well, I got Dopey. Dopey's one of the three dogs, and every now and then he goes the wrong way and brings the field down, and it all <laughs> erupted." <laughs> <laughs> Got to be a storyteller. Got to be a storyteller to get uh, a bit of interview interest, don't you? Um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to briefly touch on with you is um, everyone will forget, but you did the first Bathurst 24 hour. You're in that Porsche yeah. GD3 that led. Everyone remembers the Monaro that won and it's well publicised, yeah. but your Porsche and you at the wheel for a fair chunk of it led more yeah. laps than the Monaro yeah, that's, and that's right. was good enough to win but didn't quite get there. No, it was a third driver syndrome. The um, the bloke that owned it, uh, he was a 
a working mechanic, and uh, he was a, he was a good half a good driver too. And to to make it work, um, he used to take like I did when I went to Europe. Used to take uh, dr- drivers on with money and a helmet, and uh, that was the downfall of that car. The uh, the guy that came got in the car third. Um, you know, because those things have all got records of how, how what res we used, and he was just all over the place and blew it up. I remember he was very slow as well. Yeah, very yeah. very slow. And uh, yeah. it was yourself, David Brabham, Darren Palmer, who was son of Ross Palmer, that was the guy putting up the money for the race with Pro Car. And the other yeah. guy's name for those wondering, Manfred Urash, is the name that stuck in my memory bank from yeah. well, all him. those years. That that was him, and he was about thirty forty seconds a lap slower. <laughs> <laughs> and not three or four. He was genuinely, if you looked up the records, to find the, the fastest lap of the race. So constantly trying to make up time after he'd been in the car. Good time for him to drive safety car periods because he couldn't get past or uh, lose time. Gricey, I've got a bunch of questions here from um, our listeners. I'll, I'll start to whir through them. Um, sure. They, our, um, our couch racer questions uh, brought to you by the National Motor Racing Museum up at Mount Panorama, who, of course, got so many great cars and um, yep. elements of the sport from over the years. We filmed with you, actually. Remember the, the Shannon's Legends series with Neil Crompton uh, four or five years ago yep. in the museum, the the uh, the number 36 Roadways car, which is the uh, 1982 100-mile-an-hour car underneath yes. the skin from back in the day is, is part of the, the displays up there. So uh, I know it's been a, a weird year for everybody with border closures and things like that, but now that we're starting sure. to get back to a bit of normality for those who are in a state or who couldn't go to the Bathurst 1000 this year or who could and couldn't get into the museum because it had to be closed, uh, we'd encourage yeah. you to, to, to stop by and spend some money in that part of of New South Wales because um, it's, it's a ripping place and we can't wait to get back to, to Bathurst for car racing soon. So um, with thanks to the museum, our couch racer questions, I'll start with uh, one here. It's from a bloke called Jack Perkins, and I've got a weird feeling he might be related to Larry, not sure. Um, <laughs> what's the best Les Small story that you can recall, he says? <laughs> and let, I should preface that with that we're allowed to air as well. <laughs> um, gee, you've narrowed the field with that last comment. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, well, I think there was a, a funny little instance where um, we were new into Europe, and we obviously had the uh, Commodore. And the, we had a weight that we had to make, and the car was built light, so we used to carry it run ballast. And uh, the they pushed the car over to get ready to go on the scales, and Les and Tony carried the ballast, and they were both pretty strong blokes. And Tony was a big strong bloke, and they. Uh, Came over and put the put the lead down alongside the scales to see how much they had to put in it to uh, to make it its correct weight. And one of the uh, scrutineers said, "Oh, look, can you just move that lead back?" And went over to pick up the top piece of lead. Now Tony and Les had carried six of these over. Uh, went to to pick up one of the slabs of lead and. <laughs> 
hurt his back and turned around and said, I don't believe this. Can you please move the lead over to here? <laughs> and walked off to the ambulance. <laughs> Pretty strong boys. I was going to say, <laughs> did he check the other five bits of lead that they weren't hollow? <laughs> no, we didn't do things like that. No, uh, it does. <laughs> um, I got a weird. Did he ever? Have, what was his best dummy spit? Did he ever have a really good one? Uh, <laughs> it's a, uh didn't have the correct path. I think it was the Nurburgring or somewhere like that to get into the paddock, and uh, he gave the gate a couple of people on the gate a, re- a re- education into uh, Australian uh, <laughs> diplomacy, phase, phase, phaseology. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. Uh, I could imagine it. I could imagine it's probably fra- the, it, phraseology that we it, can't repeat. There are that, there's so many things that are end on in that that's just different to prime apart. <laughs> uh, there's another one here from another of our listeners who um, I deliberately avoided this topic because I saw this question was coming about the Craven Mild Corvair, the, the sports sedan that was such an innovative car. Um, what was it like to drive? What are your, your memories of that car? Um, well, it was a great credit to the bloke who designed it and half built it, and that was Tom Naylor. It wasn't Frank Gardner who claimed the credit for it. Uh, Frank only came on the scene because Tom couldn't afford a Formula 5000 engine. And uh, Frank could, and uh, he bought the concept from Tom and claimed it thereafter. But it was a, what was it like to drive? It was like a Formula 5000 to drive. It was a Formula 5000 with tin on it. It had Formula 5000 front suspension and brakes and steering. It had a transaxle and rear suspension, same as a Formula 5000. It was a great concept and it was a, a great car to drive. And it really did change sports sedan racing, didn't it? I mean, there's some cars in the history of categories that are game changers and that was yes. one of them because it turned it on its head. It, it did. And, you know, you've got to remember that it was racing against um, one of our great uh, sports car, well, car drivers, Jimmy Richards, Although he's a Kiwi, we claim him <laughs> uh, in a very good car in, in that uh, that Ford. Oh, the, and, uh, the Mustang, yeah, yeah, and you know that was a great uh, a great package, and I didn't have a great deal of trouble in beating him because of the physical advantage I had with the car. It, it's funny you should mention Jim because we chatted to him on the podcast last year. And he told yep. us the story about the time you two went to Mexico and raced in a thing called the Nations Cup, which we were wetting ourselves on the floor when he told us about how it all came together and the cars. And But he did tell a story, and we need to validate this now that we've got you for a chat. He told yep. a story that you'd approached him, said, look, there's this race thing on, there's a bit of money in it, we'll go and do it. I think he had to race under Team Australia for that, so we claimed him that weekend too. Um, we did. Is it right that he's that these things just kept blowing up all the time and that you took him aside and said, right, first corner, get out of the way, I'm just going to come arrowing through, I'm going to jump the start and I'm just going to fire it on through and wipe a few of them out. Is that what happened? Well, no, not quite. It was a bloody good story, though. I'm happy to get it. <laughs> what's the, what's the story gonna... from your perspective of how that all happened? Well, I've got a, a sheet here that I've found a lot of old rubbish that shows the grid and... 
Jim's last on the grid because going out the gate, he blew a turbo. So he didn't get a lap. Uh, but I'm on pole. And I've got it somewhere. I'll just, if you just bear with me for a second. Hello. Got it. Oh, you've got the listen proof. The, Here we go. Listen to the names who are in this qualifying lap. Um, well, as I said, I was on pole. Uh, Juan Manuel Fangio Jr. from Argentina. Mm-hmm. Frank Beeler from Germany. Yep. Uh, John Andretti from the USA. Oscar Manitou from Mexico. Giovanni Morbidelli from Italy. Yep. Christian Fittipaldi Jr. from Brazil. Tom Bagley from the US. Derek Bell from Great Britain. Uh, Spain. Uh, France. Uh, Spain. Uh, Wilson Fittipaldi from Brazil. Uh Oh, Philippe Gash from France, uh, Japan, Russia, USSR, Mexico. Oh, Peter Beige from Canada and Jim Richards from Australia, who was last because he said he didn't get a didn't even get a lap. He turbo blew going out the gate. So this but was, I mean, this, what, uh, what was the what were the cars again? The, uh, some Chrysler thing that just kept blowing Chrysler turbo. Shadow. <laughs> Chrysler Shadow forced on the turbo. Horrible things. Horrible. It's one of those weird and wacky race events that one off, um, never happened again, never happened before, and never had to go back. Yeah, uh, Vern Schuppen put me onto it. He had agreed to uh, to drive in it, and because he was a, a international driver uh, in those days, as you know, and uh, he was tasked with getting an, another Australian to be the form the Australian team. Close to the money, uh, he would schedule he, his um, contract sports car drive, uh, called him up and said, you've got to come and do some uh, testing. We've just done this and done that. So he rang me and said, uh, how would you like to do this? Use a couple of grand, all expenses and a couple of grand in it, and you get another driver and Bob's your uncle. And I put it all together in a week or so, and that was that. Jim Richards became but, an Australian uh, for the weekend again. Jimmy did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he's lived here for that long. We can claim him because he's been so good and won stuff. We'll claim him. If he never won a cracker, we'd, we he'd be a Kiwi forever who lives in Australia. But no question. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's fair. Uh, another one here, Grice. You know, I'm giving this our Castrol question of the week. By the way, um, mm-hmm. from a fella called Stephen Smith. I've got a feeling that this is a pseudonym. It's not his real name, but you'll probably figure it out why when I yeah. uh, get to the question. He says, "Ask Grice how it came about." that he was asked to give Alan Moffat back the 1982 Sandown Endurance Trophy that he'd uh, stored for 30 years. It's a bloody good story. Can you tell our listeners the story of the 1982 Sandown Winners Trophy? Um, sort of, I think. <laughs> um, I think uh, Moffat was pinged twice, not once but twice, for excessive speed in the pits. But I think it was a uh, – in those days, it wasn't done with a with a, a speed uh, – with a, a gun, you know, a gun to measure the actual speed of the vehicle. It was somebody's opinion, oh, well, that's going too fast. Uh, and on that basis, he was, he was uh, disqualified. Uh, but then when it came to proving it, they couldn't prove it. So he was reinstated. 
in the meantime, I'd been presented with the trailer. Like it took some weeks probably for that to sort itself out. And I'd been uh, declared, I was second, so I was declared the winner and given the trophy. Uh, and then uh, and then I reported uh, the uh, the trophy and others stolen from a burglary. So someone broke into your house? Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to piece this together. But then some time after, I don't remember, might have been weeks or months, I rediscovered the trophy and uh, it wasn't stolen. So it did get returned. So some other ones did, that one did, and then eventually, what, 30 years later, um, one Alan gave a trophy to the other Alan. That long? Yeah. <laughs> 1982, and this only happened, what, a couple of years ago? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. That's our question of the week, thanks to Castrol, and I've given it because that race, the Castrol 400 at Sandown back in the day, because it used to be the Castrol Enduro for, for many years, and um, you've had backing from Castrol over the years, so I'll get through the plug. They're more than just oil. Uh, they're liquid engineering, and Castrol provides the oils, the fluids, the lubricants for today and the future for every rider, every driver, and every industry, and you can follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport and exclusive comps and, and much, much more. A uh, couple more questions. We're nearly there, Gricey. The, uh, the, pain yeah. ne- the pain's nearly over. Uh, Corey, oh, this, this was one a lot of people asked about. How much fun and who had the idea to run that V8 Holden Ute in the Bathurst 12-hour? <laughs> Very often these things occur in the bar of a pub. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. And a couple of, uh, I forget the reason we were there, no doubt because there'd be some uh, racing or testing going on. And having a, a beer with um, a couple of blokes, one of which was John Lindell, who uh, was involved in motorsport on behalf of General Motors, unofficially, of course. And... Uh, we're talking about that, and I uh, half-heartedly said, uh, I wonder uh, if a V8 unit qualify for that category. And uh, after looking at it, John said, well, if it does and you want to run one, I've got one. I'll give it to you. <laughs> and that's really the way it happened. It went on from there because uh, power to weight, you know, with a 308 engine in them, they were pretty handy. And um, you could drive them in understeer because that'd, that'd uh, make up, in a way, for having pretty poor brakes. So uh, when I said suggested to a Cobra, they said, oh, yeah, we're in. <laughs> Perfect sponsor. And it all, it, it all just fell. Uh, well, they were a partial sponsor of mine. Because and I went to them because I started wearing the hat before they before they became a sponsor. Um, but it all sort of went together, didn't it? Yeah, made sense. Yeah, but and it was uh, as I said, if you drove it in understeer and pushed it up into the corner with lock on, and then bounced it across the curb to get the tail out, it was quite quick, and it saved the brakes. <laughs> Uh, so there you go. Uh, a lot of people still talk about the the Ute in the twelve hour, and of course the twelve hours change. I mean, it's a GT race yeah. now for exotic yeah. European cars, but at that time it yeah. was a a proddy car race where if it was on the market, you could pretty much have a have a bash at it. And exactly, and, that, and that, yeah. of course, Ute racing. Well, the Ute as a twelve hour car was this 
huge publicity. It got Holden so much PR because it was so different. But, of course, Ute Racing later uh, became the norm because it was a series on its own and um, it was it was all pretty normal. Yeah. Um, but that, um, that interview that I was telling you about where I was talking about the dogs running from side to side, uh, that wasn't that wasn't a motorsport uh, interview. That was a general sport uh, interview. That like it became main because it was a Ute in a twelve hour race. It, it became a main main story sport, mm. not motor mm. racing sport. It wasn't yeah. narrow. Yeah, it would have, so would have captured plenty of other people's attention who normally yes. don't watch cars and, and racing and yes. stuff like that. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, another one here from Andrew Cooper. This will be our last question. Uh, how did the whole Peter Jackson search for a champion program, uh, the Peter Gazard and Rick Bates won, Jason Barguana was a, a finalist. How did that all come together? You were right in the middle of all of that. What was the story behind the search for a champion program? Um, I'm just trying to think where the first spark came from for that. I think I'd read of something similar overseas. I, put, I got the original spark from someone. Um, but I know it was easy to get going because uh, straight up uh, Peter Jackson wanted to be part of it. They knew of it. Uh, and uh, Holden with the same, you know, if you can get it going, we'll give you cars. Uh, they don't give you cars to, to, uh, to keep, but they, they lend you cars. Mm. So um, it was wasn't difficult to get up and going because everybody thought it was such a great idea, and it was, you know we'd get a lot of press, which it did, and it produced some good drivers. Yeah, I think the four in the final. Uh, I found a photo of this the other day because I was trying to guess, uh, trying to remember who they all were. Rick Bates yeah. and Peter Gazard were the winners and shared the car at Bathurst in the in the one thousand. Yeah. A very young Jason Barguana was a finalist, and Brett Yulden was the other one who was yeah. in the final. In the final yes. four, but you, you roped in. I remember uh, a bunch of other drivers of the period who were, were coaches and judges, and uh, yeah, you know, they're all keen to do it. In later years, though, we've seen a lot of different kind of search for a champion style competitions mm. and things like that over the years. Probably not to the yeah. same level or degree, and they all arrive with a bang and leave with a bang as well. Uh, was yeah. that a case that it was a one-time wonder? It went well move on or was there a hunger to do it further or did you just go, oh, that was a good thing, we'll, we'll move on now to the next thing? Pretty much, yeah. I, I'm sure it could have could have done it again uh, because, it, you know, it did get a lot of press. Mm, yeah. But, but um, oh, it was, you know, it was enough. <laughs> it was pretty high intensity stuff. Yeah, because yeah, this was a, a grice deal. You, you ran this all and did it all and made it all happen. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, big project, big project. Definitely, yeah. definitely. No, it's it's one that people remember about. So you you did that program, and that car ran in the same race that you won with Win Percy for the that's whole racing team. So thirty years ago, yep, uh, this year, nineteen ninety. So, mate, before we go, well, we, you know, it's a hell of a prize, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Win a prize to race in the Bathurst one thousand. Sign me up. Where do yep. I uh, where do I enter? I reckon if you uh, launch the same idea today, you'd get just as much interest and. Plenty of uh, plenty of entries. Not sure if uh, as many of them would be as talented and capable, but uh, yeah. yeah, definitely that's one way to to grab interest, mate. Before we finish up, um, we do a thing called the Motor Focus Top Ten Shootout. It's thanks to our mates at Motor Focus who are the gurus of model cars up in Queensland. MotorFocus.com.au. They're at Unit Nine, Number One Stockwell Place in Archerfield in Queensland. Basically, mm. it's a fancy form of word association. I drop a name or a thing. 
You give me the first word that comes into your head. Sound like a plan? Oh, it sounds dangerous. Don't be libelous, whatever you do for crying out loud. Um, here we go. Alan Jones. World champion. Two words, but I'll let you have it. Uh, <laughs> Win Percy. Good bloke. That's two words too. Yeah, put a hyphen. Then it's one word. <laughs> that works. Bathurst. Difficult. Car we didn't get to talk about, Chev Monza. As good a car as I've driven. That's that's a fair statement. You've driven some cars in your time. Yeah, it was a great thing. It'd point in, it'd power down, it'd do everything the car's supposed to do. We like it. We like it. Uh, Bob Jane. Yeah, a doer. Yeah, that's a good word. I like that. Mike Raymond. <laughs> a describer. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, Le Mans. Yeah, great race. NASCAR. Fascinating. Mm, good word. I like it. Uh, Chev Corvair. Great car. And one more, Graham Bailey. Good bloke. I thought you were going to say the chicken man. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that was two words. Two words. Oh, yeah. oh, you're using your own rules against me. How could this be happening? How could this be happening? Mate, you've, you survived the Motor Focus Top 10 shootout. Um, uh, there's so many topics that we could talk about. We could go all day, but um, we are out of time. But again, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully one day down the track we can cover off some of those other topics, but I think we've got through a, a fair amount of stuff today. So, uh, mate, for all the, the, the awesome um, racing memories you've given our listeners over the years, and um, uh, thank you on behalf of, of everyone, and we hope to uh, do it again when we come up with a few more topics down the track and we can pin you down and ask you some more questions that won't hurt too much, we promise. No, look forward to it. You've got the number? We do. We'll ring it. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Bryce. You're a good man. <laughs> I don't know. It's all the best. A big thank you to Alan Grice. Great chatting with him. We covered so much ground, but the truth is there's probably a pile more ground. We could do another 50 episodes with Grice, and we'd love to have a chance to, him, uh, for, to have a chat with him again sometime soon. But before we go, don't forget, there's plenty of Gricey in our online store. You can get the full version, uh, DVD, the full race telecast of both the 1986 and 1990 Bathurst 1000s that Gricey won. And of course, he is a Holden hero, whether he thinks it or not. He is in our Racing the Lion book that celebrates the illustrated history of Holden in Australian motorsport. We've still got some copies left. Jump on the website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au and grab yours now. Don't forget, subscribe to our newsletter via v8sleuth.com.au. That'll put you on our mailing list, so you'll get advice and knowledge of upcoming products. You'll get links to stories on our website, keep you abreast of everything we're up to. And, of course, follow us on socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There's always something that we're up to there. Anyway, that's Alan Grice, run and done on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. We look forward to chatting to you for episode 83 next time.